You are approaching 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 20, Time Just Slips Away. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this episode is Hourglass, the Haas Bayreuth code gate released in A Study in Static. That reboot has moved from a res cost of 5 to 1. It is strength 4 and has three subroutines. Each one says the runner loses click if able. And the flavor text is just what it says. Time just slips away. I included that here uh, primarily because I'm going to talk about it a bit more a little later in the episode. Also because uh, my my release schedule has gotten a little bit out of whack of late, and that's just real life getting in the way of trying to do the podcast. But anyway, hopefully we're back on track a little bit here. Uh, the bulk of this episode is going to be a big chunk that covers a an early tournament from the game. But the bulk of it is actually going to be me just dropping in an interview that was recorded by Jeff Hollis with Lucas Litzinger, the original lead designer for Android Nutrunner. It's about a half hour. And, um, you know, it's, it's from right around this time when A Study in Static was just released. So it's an interesting listen, I think. And uh, it also helps me get my schedule back on track because it means that my part of the episode's a little bit shorter. Anonymous tip. Runner deck construction. This is just a brief comment that the big boy made in passing when discussing deck building in the Discord server for Reboot. He said this, remember, starting your deck building with, I want to break ice like this, is putting the cart before the horse. Think about what you want to do when you get in. Then think about how you get in. It can be something simple, like, I want to use RDI on R&D and IMP on HQ. But if your multi-access or disruption is an afterthought, the deck probably won't work. You'll break some ice for zero and then access a single card and be like, what was the point? Uh, I should mention that RDI is R&D interface, which is a card coming, I think, in the next pack, or maybe the one after that. It's coming up soon, a very powerful multi-access tool. But there's a good idea, a good suggestion to keep in mind. Something I need to keep in mind, probably, when I'm building a runner deck. Experiential data. The Board Game Geek Octagon Tournament number 2. This is a tournament that started in, I want to say, January or February of 2013. And so the decks that are present 
we're only th- up through trace amount, which is the second data pack. But it concluded in April, which is around the time a study in static was released, and so that's why I'm including the report here. This one is from the second place finisher, Orange Devil, who also finished second place in the first Octagon tournament. And once again, I'm including his decks because he's more, uh, explains his thinking a little bit more than necessarily the other ones did. So let's take a look at the decks that he won with. And I'll then present his comments. And then I have a couple of brief comments after each one myself. First, for the Corp, Wayland Consortium, that's who he used. The agenda suite is three hostile takeover, three priority requisition, and a private security force from the core set, and then three project atlas. Only three assets, all Melange Mining Corp. Nine operations, uh, three Beanstalk royalties, three hedge fund. Uh, You got to do that if you're using Wayland, right? Uh, two archived memories from HB, and one power grid overload. Three upgrades, two corporate troubleshooter from HB, and one very expensive San San City grid from NBN. And then 24 ice, two Hadrian's wall, three ice wall, three wall of static, two toll booth from NBN, three Enigma, uh, three Archer, three Shadow, three Caduceus, two Rototurret. That comes from HB. Here's his comment. So first things first, props for this deck go to Hollis. That's Jeff Hollis, who made it. For this tourney, I didn't get to play too much with the new data packs. I felt like I didn't know enough about the new cards to make great decks. I also saw a lot of people posting about how Wayland was overpowered, so I figured I'd play Wayland and Criminal and see what I could do with it. I thus went to two players that I knew were good and made good decks and ended up copying their decks. Hollis ended up running a different deck in this tourney, which I'm sure he'll post, but this deck, with one small change, was his original plan. The change I made was changing three Hadrians, two Wall of Static, to two Hadrians and three Wall of Static. The idea is Hadrian's isn't very good, you never want three of them, and you can almost always use more early game ice. The idea of the deck is to build up a single solid remote with good ice on the centrals, get a money advantage, and then use that advantage to lock the game down with corporate troubleshooters and archer or roto turret. Additionally, Rototurret can catch a runner unaware early on, as it is not a common splash in Wayland, and really set the runner back. Furthermore, if you can get Sansan in the mix, it works incredibly well with Atlas, which you always want to try to get one with two counters scored as fast as you can safely do. This plan is good, but the execution could, in my view, be better. Specifically, Ash does everything Corporate Troubleshooter does in terms of letting me use my economy to lock out the game, but it does so much more efficiently. Dropping the Roto Turrets and the Corporate Troubleshooters for two Ash is probably better. I feel like Ash was the all-star of the second tournament, even though only one player in the top four used him. The idea behind not running Scorched 
is that when the opponent only sees your deck once, like in a tournament, the threat of Scorched tends to be just as good as actually having Scorched. Especially during the Swiss round, this held true. Furthermore, not having Scorched allows you more room for other cards, thus increasing the overall efficiency and reliability of the deck. Had I gone with Ash instead, and thus had two card slots open, I would seriously consider adding in two Scorched. But it's by no means certain. I certainly got into situations where I really wish I had Scorched, but it's impossible to tell if that means Scorched should have definitely been in this deck, since it'd affect all my other draws as well and thus completely change the game state. What I can say, however, is that the single private security force won me two games, both versus Malefact. I actually played him twice in this tournament, which really wrecks my Scorched is still scary because they don't know it's their plan, as does playing Hollis, who after all designed the deck. Even so, I managed to win both those matches, and even the game against Malefact, which speaks to the strength of the rest of the deck. Private Security Force was so useful, in fact, that I am seriously unsure if it would not be better to cut one Priority Requisition and one Hostile Takeover and add in two more PSF. However, the semifinals and the finals put such a heavy emphasis on Hostile Takeover that I'm simply not sure anymore now. A perhaps hidden weakness of this deck is the low amount of assets and upgrades. This means it's very difficult to make the runner perform repeat runs on your remote and thus get maximum efficiency out of the ice installed there. This means you need to be prepared to put big ice on centrals to at least get efficiency there and use your archived memories to recycle assets and upgrades and force more runs. Also, try to install stuff into the remote at a rate of one per turn, unless you are sure it'll net you a scored agenda, or you can pull off a melange with it or something big like that. Lastly, a card that deserves mention is the 1x Power Grid Overload. It has two uses. Firstly, if it gets spotted, this might make runners believe I'm going for Scorched Earth, even if they had already excluded the possibility before. Secondly, its main usage is blowing up consoles, especially those whose MU is fully used, thus forcing the runner to trash programs, which is in line with the rest of the strategy of the deck. Ideally, you get an out atlas with a counter scored, wait until the runner exhausts his bank on a run, then use the atlas to fetch it up and blow an important console like Grimoire or Desperado for cheap. It's not always reliable, but I feel like it's worth the one card slot. Before we go on to his runner deck, let me make a couple comments. Similar to the Waldemar deck that I discussed a couple episodes back, this is an upgrade-based Glacier deck that wants to score out in the remote and have one big remote. The economy, unlike Waldemar, is not protected or naked assets, but a mix of operations and protected assets, uh, because that melange there needs to be protected. And maybe it's somewhat compromised for being a mix, although I guess if you only have the first two data packs you're working with, maybe you don't have too many other options. You can't go straight operation. Maybe now where we are in the card pool, you could, uh, since green level clearance exists, so there's three more operations, and maybe even commercialization if you want to 
invest a little bit to advance, say, an ice wall or something. Uh, So those seem like strong includes here. But I think uh, we should all, listening to this at this point, whether you are a long-time netrunner, strategic, high-level player, or you're like myself, uh, either coming back or just starting with the game and kind of relearning, can we all agree that what the biggest problem with this deck is? Too much ice, right? 24 pieces of ice, and then he's talking about, I don't have enough slots. So this is a mindset from the early game that you needed to have a lot of ice. And I mean, even, even I think 24 sounds like a lot. So you can f- cut to get down to uh, what Big Boy said, 19 is a crutch, but 17 is something you can maybe get away with. We don't have Jackson Howard yet, so maybe 19 is okay, but that's still cutting five cards that allows for the extra assets and upgrades that Orange Devil wanted, right? He said he didn't have enough space for it, wish he'd had more, would have made that remote more effective. Maybe you can squeeze in some extra economy. Maybe that's where you can get the green level clearance. I would maybe ditch the um, San San because it's so much influence. Just three influence for one card. I think I'd rather have three cards for that are each one influence. Like say, for example, green level clearance. That would be an easy swap. Uh, one other difference is that this approach to using corporate troubleshooter in a taxing server is also different from what we saw in Waldemar. Because there, in Waldemar, you want to drag the runner through the server multiple times. But letting them think that they're safe, then using a corporate troubleshooter to wipe out their killer so the archer gets all its teeth back or a roto turret, that's a different, interesting kind of approach to me. It seems a little too combo-y. And he, again, he also made the same observation that Ash would have been better. Uh, but apparently it was effective here, at least against uh, an, er, with an early game pool and uh, still sort of uh, new, wet behind the ears uh, community of players. All right, let's look at the runner deck. This is the criminal Gabriel Santiago. Comes with 20 events, 3 account siphon, 3 inside job, 3 special order. 3 Infiltration, 3 Sure Gamble, 3 Easy Mark, and 2 of the Maker's Eye from Shaper. For Hardware, 3 Desperado, 3 Plascrete Carapace to protect against those scorched earth, 2 E3 Feedback Implants, and a Lemuria Codecracker. 14 Programs, which seems like a lot for Criminal to me, but maybe not. 3 Femme Fatale, 1 Ninja, 3 Corroder, from Anarch, a one Yog from Anarch, and two Peacock, also two Sneak Door Beta, and two Magnum Opus from Shaper. That's interesting. And finally, two Armitage Code Busting. Here are Orange Devil's comments. Credit for this deck goes to Jope Jope. It is interesting to note that I completely played this deck wrong for my first bunch of Swiss games. I thought a hand with breakers was good. I was wrong. The only thing you really care for in your first hand is money cards. Armitage is best. Magnum Opus is okay. Sure Gamble and Easy Mark are also good. Account Siphon and Desperado are okay-ish, but not enough on their own. It's clearly an early pressure deck, which packs a whole lot of breakers. You want to get them early to put pressure and keep pressuring And to make sure you don't run out of steam, as criminal decks tend to do, 
you eventually get magnum opus to keep you going. Yog.0 is a great surprise splash, and for one influence and the ability to tutor it, you really can't not take it in criminals. It's just awesome. So let me just insert here so I don't forget it later. I don't really see why Yog is a great splash here. I mean, again, it's good against Enigma, a uh, pop-up window, and I guess, you know, not even Chimera, but mainly, and, and Victor, uh, before reboot, it would have been good against Victor. But are you going to run Yogg just to get through Enigmas? I don't know. It doesn't do anything against Tollbooth, right? What do you do about those? I guess you use your criminal tools for those. But Yogg is so expensive. Even pre-reboot, it was five. Now it's six. And maybe I just don't know. Going back to Orange Devil's comment, Fem is obviously your main engine for getting past the first big ice the corp manages to res and keep the pressure on. 2E3 is also kind of mandatory in my view, as HB remains strong, and it's just such an amazingly strong counter to bioroids. Lemuria was supposed to do for exposing what Magnum Opus does for my economy, that is, keep me going in the late game. In reality, it was junk, and I never used it. I also really, really missed not having any stim hacks. Now, the reason there are three corroders is to get that rig set up fast and just put massive pressure. Furthermore, I once won a game where a neural katana destroyed two corroders and the corp thought I had no further barrier breakers. However, I think cutting a corroder and the Lemuria to add two stim hacks would make this deck better. Stim hack is especially great against Ash which I really didn't have a lot of ways to deal with as the deck list stands. You get that ash on a melange in a remote, and it's time to take free money until the agendas come. Then drop them down in that remote, and as long as there's enough ice there, I'm completely screwed. Then either drop the next melange, or even Adonis, or get an old one back with archived memories, and repeat. Stimhack is the answer here, and in plenty of other hairy situations. Plaskreed helps explain why there are only two Armitages in this deck. The idea is that I want to ignore tags completely. This allows me to not clear them from account siphons, as well as ignore a slew of ice. Of course, I don't want to do this until one, or preferably two, Plaskreeds are actually on the table, which is why I'm running three. Ninja didn't really see much play, but it's still worth a slot in case you get in an archer plus corporate troubleshooter situation in the late game, I feel. Sure, ideally you fem that archer, but if you're out of those, ninja is the only way you'll win that economic battle, similar to Stimhack versus Ash. Lastly, the hard cut of this deck was forged activation orders. It's a good card, but there just wasn't room. I suggested to Jope Jope to cut the easy mark for the FAOs, and I tried that out a bunch of times, but it just wasn't working for me. It often slowed me down just too much, and it really reduced the amount of great opening hands I could draw. Now, I noticed that three-fourths of you voted FAO over infiltration in the top card poll. All three-fourths of you were completely wrong. Infiltration is far and away better than forged activation orders, and I would never even consider cutting it for FAO in this deck, or really almost any other deck. Infiltration not only protects from ambushes, 
But in the late game, it also becomes flat out the best economy card for the runner, when it can save you from making a needless run on a fat remote. Furthermore, it can be ditched for two credits in case of emergency, so not only is it efficient, allows you to do something vital, but it's also incredibly flexible. Thus, I'd like to formally petition putting Infiltration back into the competition for best card because it being defeated in a landslide by FAO is just so incredibly wrong. Now, that's the end of his comments. I haven't analyzed runner archetypes at all, so I don't feel equipped yet to weigh in here on what is and isn't working. His observation that a good opening hand isn't necessarily one that contains a breaker seems pretty right on for criminal to me, though. And I glanced at the big boy's archetypes doc to see where I could see some of those 11 different aspects and runner decks that are important. And I think, too, that this deck seems to pretty clearly reflect our early access pressure, where you're trying to steal agendas from central servers early, and economic speed, where you're trying to make money quickly in the early to mid-game. Uh, beyond that, again, I don't feel like I can evaluate. Oh, and I feel like I should mention here that whole last paragraph where he was talking about infiltration being better than forged activation orders and referring to people voting for forged activation orders and vote and talking about a tournament. Yeah, so in April of 2013, I actually ran a tournament on Board Game Geek called the Best Card Tournament, where I paired up every card that was currently in existence, I think all the way up to a study and static. I'm pretty sure I included this pack. Um, and then just put them through a, an entire tournament where you basically said which one of these two cards is the best. And I grouped them by faction as much as possible. I grouped them by subtype. So, you know, you had all of the consoles against each other, all of the agendas against each other, all the programs against each other, and so on, until you got to the very end. And that tournament ran for, I don't know, like a month, maybe six weeks. And I had a lot of fun doing it. And I intended to run it again. And then I don't think I ever did. Or maybe it wasn't quite as successful. I don't remember the second one as well. Um, I will provide a link to it in the show notes if you want to go back and take a look at what people had to say and think about all of these various early pool cards. And actually, I kind of, I was going to record this podcast and um, sort of fell down a rabbit hole for about five or ten minutes as I was just reading comments that people made about the different matchups. There's kind of a lot of interesting observations about these games and the early these cards in the early pool just randomly dropped into the comments of this best card tournament. Anyway, moving on. Archived memories. Well, here I'm going to step out for about a half hour and let you listen to an interview that Jeff Hollis, who was a pretty prolific early writer on Netrunner strategy, he had one of uh, the first blogs on Board Game Geek going back into right around the time the game was released, where he would regularly have various strategy articles and, and uh, sort of puzzles for what to do if you here you are in this situation, how would you handle it? And in this situation, this, situ uh, this instance, he actually contacted Lucas Litzinger, who you may or may not know was the prime designer behind 
Fantasy Flight's reboot of Netrunner, uh, or reimagining of Netrunner, I guess. Don't want to use the word reboot for two different things. And so they just have a nice conversation here about what Lucas's feelings are on the uh, current tournament situation, on the current card pool. And uh, yeah, I'll just stop babbling and let you go ahead and listen to the interview. Hey, everyone. So we're going to do something a little bit different this month. Uh, there is no strategy article. There is no video. But instead, I had the opportunity to sit down with Lucas Litzinger as the lead designer of Android Netrunner and discuss the game with him. I've been compiling a list of forum posts, uh, forum threads that uh, I thought would be interesting questions to pose to Lucas. And so I emailed him kind of on a whim and asked if he would be up for an interview, and he agreed, and I was pretty happy about that. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to field some questions to him on some of what I think are the, the, the major topics about game balance and game design uh, in the context of Android Netrunner, and we're going to see what he has to say. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy this. It was a really interesting opportunity for me, and I, I think it turned out to be a really great discussion. Okay, so here we go. One of the things that really impresses me about Android Netrunner is just how many deck building options there are available. Uh, even with a very, very small card pool, there's a lot of things you can do when building a deck. So what I'm curious about is whether or not any deck archetypes have emerged that weren't really expected during development. In short, I would say no, not really. But I don't think that's a bad thing because there are always certain card combinations that people pull out or I see played that can surprise me and I think that's one of the strengths of the game is that you can take a deck and you can just switch out about five or ten cards in it and it's going to play completely different than how it played before and you have to know how to pilot your deck it's not just about deck building deck building is very important but playing the deck is also very important in Netrunner maybe even more important and so you can go online and grab a net deck or basically take a deck archetype and put in like the same 45 cards that your friend did, but you might not have the same success uh, unless you know how you're going to approach the game and how you're going to pilot that deck. And so I think just the fact that you can switch out a couple of cards and have a completely different experience with that deck and maybe even go from losing to winning is one of the strengths of the game because it rewards that sort of continued play and continuing basically of uh, putting the finishing touches and that's one of the cool things that I, I love about the game. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, it really kind of blew my mind when I was first deck building and I was like, wow, so I have 15 influence points and then if I use these cards, my deck plays one way and if I use these cards, it's like a completely different deck. Um, and, that, and that blew me away. And so do you, think, do you think it's the influence system that really contributes to this? I think that's definitely a large part of it. The influence system gives you a lot of options. Like you could put any card you want except for agendas, obviously, on the corporation side, into your deck. And that flexibility really opens up a lot of interesting choices that you might not have otherwise. And so the influence system provides you with that creativity that you want when building a deck. And yet it also has the restriction of about 15 influence on average. And the creativity becomes important because there are those restrictions. And also the, the influence system just as a whole, I think, is one of the stronger aspects of the reboot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I agree. Um, particularly like the the constraints that 
influence puts on you, you just can't pick the best cards. You really have to pick and choose what you want your deck to do and make sure your influence is trying to fulfill that goal. It makes deck building a lot more challenging, a lot more interesting, and it means you can really kind of sit down and just finesse a deck for a long period of time. Right, exactly. And sometimes even spending all of that 15 influence is the wrong choice for your deck, Yeah, which is always interesting. Yeah, that's actually something I've come to really appreciate. Uh, I've started running some decks that only do like 13 or 14 influence, and it's like, yeah, this is this is the right decision. I, I really want to fill in that influence, but I it's not not right for this deck, so I just got to let it go. Uh, it makes some really awkward uh, <laughs> awkward moments when you're like, yes. I need to put things in, but no, no, I can't. I got to leave it <laughs> right, where it what is. What do I take out? What do I take out? Yeah, yeah. So that that's very cool. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about some specific cards. I got a, a couple and we'll kind of go through them through this discussion. One of the ones that really jumps out at me is Melange Mining. There was a analog card in the original Netrunner. Uh, and I believe what it did was it was zero to res and three clicks for six credits. Melange, of course, is one to res, three clicks for seven credits. The cool thing about these cards is that as I understand it, in the original Netrunner, the analog to Melange was just never played. It wasn't a good card. But in the new Netrunner, Melange is amazing. Like, it is your go-to for economy, despite the fact that it's so fragile. And I'm wondering, like, what happened here? Like, this is a cool change. And, like, what's different about the games that made this card so much different from the original to now? That's a good question. So the original South African Mining Corps was three clicks for six credits, and Melange is three clicks for seven, which seems like a very small difference. But... When you're talking about Netrunner, in many cases, sometimes one or two credits can be the difference between victory and defeat. And so over the course of the game, those credits can certainly add up to make Melange a much more appealing option. I think, though, you you definitely hit on something where it's also the card pool and just what else is available in the game that created this difference between the two. And in the old game, you had a lot more operations that the corporation could use to build their economy and... The great thing about operations are they are very hard to trash for the runner. And so in a way, you almost have this untrashable economy that the corporation could throw down using his credit consolidations and whatnot. And also, if you were talking about the unlimited card pool, how Netrunner really was, a 1-15 to 15 format came, became more popular after the fact. But you could put in tons of these operations, and you didn't necessarily need to rely on an asset that can be trashed and the runner can just get rid of. And so I think that's definitely one of the important distinctions between them. But also just three for seven is better than three for six. And over the course of the game, that is going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Hey, it's neat. So I've been uh, mucking around with Wayland. And one of the cool things about Wayland is they can have this uh, this operation-driven economy. And you just can't keep them down. Like, you can't suppress their economy. You can try, and you'll keep it low, but you won't get rid of it. Right. So that's uh, one of the really interesting things about operation-driven economies um, and kind of comparing it to, to Melange. So some of the other cards that jumped out at me, like when I first opened up my core set and I was looking through the cards and I was looking over all the identities and I looked at Noise and I was like, wow, this card is going to be so powerful. Because like it, it scales really well as the card pool grows and as more viruses become available with different functions. Do you think that there's any special consideration that needs to be directed towards noise for balancing as the card pool grows? I think all identities require some special attention. This is a card that you can start the game with and gives you a special power. So that in and of itself is always a scary proposition. Mm -hmm. The corporation can't do anything to stop a runner identity from triggering its ability. And so you're always going to have to pay special attention to these sort of abilities. 
Noise in particular seems to be a rather contentious identity just because of the supposed non-interaction that he can create by just installing viruses and milling them off the top of R&D. So he was definitely an important card for the core set. He defined the Anarchs in a really interesting way where it tells you that R&D is important for them and that they're going to be trying to hit up R&D and that forces the corporation to respond. They also play a much slower game if you're going for the virus mill than the other runners, and that also forces the corporation out of perhaps their normal play style, pushes them a little bit more toward an aggro, fast advance. And so I think that archetype is important for the game. On the other hand, you don't want it to become dominating and too strong because that can definitely imbalance things. And I think right now, while noise will certainly get better in a certain extent, just as as far as more viruses coming out, he's also going to get worse as the card pool expands and the corporation has more options to basically mess with R&D and protect R&D and even shuffle stuff back into, uh, sorry, archives, obviously. Whenever I said R&D, I should have meant archives. Because, yeah, yeah. Uh, shuffle it from archives back into R&D. And so I think in a way, you're going to lose efficiency if you just keep adding more and more viruses to a noise deck. And eventually those, those run on archives are going to be more difficult to accomplish and win the game with in one go. So... While he's definitely somebody that we will watch in the future, I feel pretty confident that as the card pool grows, he's going to actually become worse. Cool. That's interesting to hear. So a couple of thoughts. One of the ways to deal with noise is just to kind of plow through agendas as fast as you can because, I mean, he's slow to set up. He takes a while to get right. going. And so it's really cool. I've, when I play, I've seen this this kind of shift towards when the core set first started, really kind of big ice uh, huge defenses, just make a huge remote server, and that was kind of like the, the big corp strategy. And now I'm seeing a lot of decks emerging that are just weeny little ice. Uh, let's just get a variety of different types of ice. So he needs all his breakers and he needs his entire rig and just get cards advanced and scored before he can really run on anything. So it's neat to see that shift. I think it'll be cool to see other cards enter the card pool that force all the runners to entertain multiple attack options and not just kind of have one path to victory. It'll be neat to see uh, if, if things change that way. Right. And I, I think another point with regards to noise is he's actually much more vulnerable to a flat line than a shaper and a criminal, at least if the shaper and criminal is being defensive at all. And so I think that is another consideration you have to take into account whenever you decide to slap him onto the table. Yeah, that's definitely a fair point. I've got my butt handed to me a couple times now playing against Wayland and they just build up a bank and then you do your first run and suddenly your seesaw scorched and you're dead. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that that is definitely uh, something to consider when when playing noise compared to the other the other runners. Exactly. Cool. Um, so I guess I played in two tournaments now and I played a lot just in casual games. And one of the things that I'm getting the impression is that the game really overwhelmingly favors the runner when you get skilled players playing. I'm just wondering what your observations have been, if you think there are things to balance here, or if if you're pretty happy with the state of the game right now. I would say overall I'm pretty happy with the state of the game right now. I wouldn't say that it overwhelmingly favors the runner. It does seem that, in particular, Gabe is very strong and is perhaps skewing results a little bit, and Jinteki might need a slight bump and is underperforming. Mm -hmm. But even if you look at the Octagon Tournament 2 results, I think the corporation win percentage was about 47% overall. So even if that drops into the lower 40s for the top players, the players that ended up in the final top eight or whatnot i think it's still pretty competitive overall and is well within a range that we're comfortable with you also have to keep in mind that if you 
do anything to potentially make corporations much stronger at a higher level of play, like you run the risk of more casual players decrying that the game is overwhelmingly in favor of the corporation. Yeah. Since players, when they start playing, are not aggressive enough as the runner, and so the game favors the corporation is kind of what I've seen. And so you have to be careful not to get the game to a state where players who don't necessarily play as much in a competitive scene but just play to have fun are finding that they're having less fun with the game. And so that was definitely something we were even taking into account in the core set. So if you play the starter decks, they're not the most competitive decks, but they're pretty fun to play with. And one of the main weaknesses of the corporation decks is the lack of in-the-run ice. And it was kind of decided that in order to push the Netrunner experience and to actually make the games entertaining and and interesting, we wanted to put a little bit less ice and a little bit less in-the-run ice into those decks in order to push the interaction between the players. And so you have to be careful always between trying to balance the game too much for one set of players or another. Yeah, I so I think that was excellently said. So although like I, I'm a little bit in a disagreement, I actually think the game is very much in favor of the runner at the high level and it's definitely pronounced for Gabe but like I'm, I'm willing to entertain differences here but I think you raised a really great point if you balance it for one skill level it's going to affect all the other skill levels as well um, and, right. and we definitely want a competitive game at the top skill levels but I think another thing to take into account is just the fact that the corporation is much more likely to get screwed over by bad luck. Yeah, yeah. The corporation can get too many agendas and they lose. The corporation cannot draw enough agendas when they have the advantage and lose the game. And so I think overall the corporation is much more likely to be blown out in certain games and also just to lose because of their deck distribution and the way that the cards came out. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Good points to make. On the topic of, of kind of tournaments and competitive play, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, but the, the, the tournament scoring system sets up these really weird situations sometimes where um, a player can actually expect to earn more prestige or win a match by actually playing in ways that will make them lose the game. Um, there's these weird tensions between trying to win the tournament versus trying to win the game versus trying to win the match. Um, and what do you think of this? Uh, is there an issue here? Is there something that needs to be uh, looked at again or maybe scrutinized or is it working kind of as intended? I would say it's working as intended. The match is not necessarily supposed to tell you which decks were necessarily better than other decks. It's supposed to tell you which player, in effect, was playing better than the other player. And so I think it's important to reward people for winning a match versus just winning a game within the match. So we will certainly review things after regional seasons and see if there are any improvements we need to make to the rules. But overall, I would say that I would, I'm pretty happy with how they are working out. Okay, so what about these situations that sometimes arise, though, where you have won the first game and you're on the second game, uh, and you can literally guarantee a match win on the first or second turn, but by doing so, you are basically throwing that second game. In situations like this, it kind of seems like the tensions between game wins, match wins, and tournament wins really make the system break down, and you're no longer measuring anything about skill, or at least the, the, the match points are no longer measuring anything about skill, and they're more kind of measuring things about how well can you game the system. They can certainly sometimes seem to conflict, but I would say that 
in general, it's much better to win with a full six prestige than to just try to play it safe and get four prestige. Obviously, you might find yourself in a situation where you've performed well enough in the tournament that four is going to put you into that cut. And so I think scoring the breaking news, which is not a bad play anyway, turn one is a totally legitimate play. And I don't have a problem with it, but I think overall it's much better to go in thinking that you're going to try to win 6-0 versus 4-2 because, you know, rounds can take a while, and so there aren't usually quite as many rounds. You're playing two two games per match, and each one is very important, and so you want to try to maximize how many you win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is something I don't really appreciate fully um, is like the fact that games take a long time. Uh, and I hear a lot of people say this, and I just it, it blows my mind. Um, but it is, it is probably true. I, I, I've come to accept that. It is true, and I just it don't understand it. It the players and the decks. Sometimes, you know, you knock out a game in 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes about 40. Yeah. I guess sometimes it takes longer. But uh, the, the time limit is meant to make people kind of play a bit more aggressively and not to also just kind of try to get into a natural flow of the game. You shouldn't really be sitting there thinking about your next move for like two minutes. I, I think that can, in certain situations, be poor sportsmanship. You should try to keep the game moving at a quick clip. And, you know, if you have the time, use it. But if you're worried about running out of time, just try to play a little bit faster. And I think it's more fun if you just try to get into a natural rhythm of the game where you just go click, 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 and now it's your turn. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair advice. All right, cool. So, Humanity Shadow just got spoiled uh, yesterday, I think, and one of the cards in that was Data Hound. And Data Hound is really cool because it's one of the first cards that breaks the mold of what traces do. Traces so far have really been all or nothing. And Data Hound gives us a situation where their effect is proportional to how much you, you win the trace by. So can we expect more cards like Data Hound in the future, or is this kind of an anomaly? Yeah, I think we can definitely expect more of that sort of card in the future. I think it makes for some interesting decisions when you're actually trying to decide whether or not to beat the trace as the runner. Normally it is, do I spend the credits or do I not spend the credits? But now you have an interesting choice where it's how many credits do I spend even if I lose? Yeah. And so cards like that in Power Grid Overload definitely kind of create a tension that is not always there with a regular bid where you might not just have the credits to spend to beat it. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely stay safe bet to expect more of those cards in the future. Cool. That that definitely excites me. I went back and I reread some of the early articles that were posted and it seems like the, the trace system has really diverged quite a bit from the original Netrunner. And it seems like this is, uh, this is a refinement that you've put a lot of time and effort into, um, into kind of really iterating on and, and, and changing. And so what do you think of the, the trace system so far? Uh, has it lived up to expectations? I would say that I'm very happy with the trace system and where it ended up. The original trace system was certainly not bad by any means, but it just didn't quite fit into some of our design goals with the reboot. And we wanted to make traces interactive from the very beginning of the game, which is why runners have a base link on them. That was one of the hardest things about the design, was trying to find a trace system that fit into the game and to feel too much like a game within a game, and also didn't suck too many credits out of the game. And so I think we landed on a pretty 
elegant solution to that, and I'm pretty happy with where it has ended up. As far as new trace mechanics in the future, I wouldn't be surprised to see some cool new stuff, but it might be a ways down the line before we really dive back into it and explore its full potential. Yeah, cool. I think that seems reasonable. I mean, there's, there's still a lot to explore with this system as it is. So besides the trace system, are there any other aspects of the design that you're, you're really kind of proud or satisfied with? I would say probably the factions and the influence system. This was one of the more noticeable changes from the original game where you just had corporation cards and runner cards and you didn't have them divided into any factions. And so this was certainly a big risk just because it definitely changed the way that you approach deck building and changed the way that you played the game. But I think overall it's been very good for the game and it's created a pretty healthy meta and uh, I'm usually not a fan of games where out of out of faction cards cost you something during gameplay. And so I wanted a system where you can put the card into your deck and then you forget that it's even that faction's card. You just play it. It's just a card in your deck that you can use. I think that's much more interesting and speeds up the game and creates interesting deck options and so overall i'd say i'm pretty happy with how that turned out and i think it's one of the real strengths of the game yeah i i completely agree i think i think the the influence system is probably uh my favorite part of the game it, it creates some really interesting deck building options and like you said it's it's great to be able to once the deck is built to not really have to think about that while you're playing like your deck just is and there's no no really cost considerations or weird kind of uh weird kind of math or evaluations you have to do in the game while you're playing your deck is your deck once it's built um and right. that's very very elegantly done i i like i like the influence system quite a bit yeah i don't think you have enough influence to really feel like you're not playing the faction that you've chosen for your identity yeah and i was a little bit worried about people identifying with their various factions i wasn't sure how they would be received but overall it seems like they've been a pretty big hit and people like certain ones and find that certain ones suit their play style which is just great to see yeah i i completely agree i really affiliate with both criminal and nbn and like their play styles and their, their card options just really appeal to me and so i think that's very cool uh, and I, I feel that I feel it's really interesting that I can still import cards from other factions and kind of personalize and customize uh, the functioning of my decks. Are there any factions you identify with? It's a good question. I like them all. I like them all, but I do enjoy playing Jinteki and just some of the mind games they have and the bluffing aspect of their play style. And then I also find Criminal very enjoyable because it's focused more on running versus icebreaking. And I find running to be a little bit more exciting in general. And running is the heart of the game. It's not breaking ice. Ice breaking is really just a means to an end. And so I think the Criminals are quite fun to play. And they are also pretty strong right now. Yeah, I, I think... Um my reasons for liking criminal are pretty much the same as your reasons for liking criminal. I like collecting information and kind of figuring out how should I how should I respond to this situation. So that sounds kind of similar to what you're saying. Definitely, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle that you're putting these pieces together. Yeah, exactly. I, I kind of I kind of see myself as counterintuitively as a crime inspector. So I'm <laughs> I'm out I'm out investigating a crime and I got to piece together all the pieces and figure out who did what and where I need to go next. That's a really cool feel that, that Criminal definitely gives you, especially if you're playing very aggressively. So it's neat, neat that you like Jinteki. I've actually just very recently been putting a lot of effort into playing Jinteki. My strategy is every data pack I focus on a new faction. 
Uh, and so this this data package, Jinteki, and it's neat because they have a lot of different troubles that they have to deal with than other factions, but they have other tools too. I always discounted Jinteki up till now, but now I'm really starting to appreciate that, you know, they're maybe not so bad as people think they are. Uh, it just necessitates a very different style of play. They do. You have to play risky. You have to bluff. You're not, not going to win if you're not bluffing with Jinteki. Yeah. So you have to put the runner in situations where they just don't want to run on your remote servers. And if you have them there, then you have a pretty good shot of winning. Obviously, playing against a criminal deck can be tough, as Jinteki and criminal is very strong right now. But they do have at least Ibotsu loyalty to help prevent any exposed effects. And the amount of damage that they can just keep shooting the runners away Right, quite impressive. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it's so neat. Like, oftentimes you'll just drop down a card, advance it twice at the beginning of the game, and people are like, I don't want to run that. I could lose so much here. I'll just right. let them do whatever. And like, yep. you can totally use it, use that to your advantage as Jinteki, and I think that's very underappreciated. Um, Definitely. So, so that that is cool. Yeah, one of my favorite games was when I was playing a Jinteki deck, and I installed a Brain Trust first turn uh, along with a couple other remote servers. It was never run on until I had five points, and then I scored it the last turn of the game by advancing it three times. So you certainly have to play aggressive as Jinteki at certain times, and sometimes you lose, sometimes you don't. But uh, I find them very interesting. They are kind of a puzzle to play as well. Um, so what about what about this big box that's coming out, I think, in June? So I'm very, very excited about this. I've seen some of the spoiled cards, and they look interesting. How do you think this will affect general play? It's already a kind of a small card pool, and now we're bringing in some cards that are specific to two, two factions. Do you think that's going to influence things very much? I think I think you'll definitely see a lot of Shaper and Aspiroid decks when the box first releases, and I think it will definitely shake up the game a little bit. It's something we were definitely aware of. Introducing a box focused on two factions does kind of imbalance things just from a card numbers perspective in their favor for a while until you potentially have more boxes like that. And so in some of our other LCGs, we'll do faction boxes where it just focuses on a single faction. And we weren't comfortable with doing one faction per box. And due to the asymmetry of the game, we felt much more comfortable with kind of breaking it up so you don't get quite as many cards of one faction as you would if the whole box was focused on them and split them into two. And I think, I think it will definitely have an impact and those factions will certainly get stronger but due to the influence system the other factions will also get stronger just by you know virtue of being able to put some of those cards into their decks as well mm -hmm. and i guess like even it's going to include a lot of neutral cards too right i think a third yeah, there will definitely be some neutral cards in there as well yeah so that so i think that um if anything everybody's everybody's winning from this maybe maybe Haas and um the shapers might get a uh, a slight edge, but uh, I'm not terribly concerned about balance issues for that. Right. I think it's going to be an exciting product. I mean, not only will you have a lot more tools to build with for competitive players, but there are two pre-constructed deck lists in there as well that you can build from just that box. And so for perhaps a more casual player or a new player who's just picked up the core set, picking up creation control as a second purchase and adding those decks kind of to your retinue of core set starter decks and playing those against them is going to be a lot of fun. Cool. Well, I look forward to that then. I got, I think, one more card I want to... I want to ask you about specifically, um, and so this is kind of an interesting card because it's one that I, I thought was powerful, but I didn't really think 
much of, I didn't really think it was that interesting at the time, uh, but I saw some forum posts that kind of convinced me it's, it's a good card to talk about, and it's AstroScript Pilot Program. And so this is, I love this card because it lets you do some really cool stuff both with ambush assets and manipulating how many times you need to advance cards before you can score them. Uh, and so it lets you do some really cool things as a corporation. But it's also pretty powerful, like disproportionately more powerful than the other three cost agendas, I think. Accelerated beta test comes close, but it's swingy. And with Project Vitruvius, you need to go past three to get value out of it. So do you think that the power of this card is going to really limit design space for other cheap neutral or NBN agendas in the future? I don't know if it's going to limit design space. It's certainly a strong card, and it's definitely arguably NBN's strongest card just due to the fact that you score one and then you can start fast advancing other ones off of that first one you scored. Mm -hmm. I think fast advance in general is different in Android Netrunner than the original Netrunner. We want we want it to be an option. It has to be an option because the runner has to be scared of it. Otherwise, they just sit back and they wait and they wait and they wait. So the corporation needs some ability to force the runner's hand. So it is an important tempo uh, style that the game is healthier for having. On the other hand, you don't want it to become too effective or the game does lose some interest. And so that's definitely something that we always look at and try to to limit. So you won't see any Tyco extensions or management shakeups or cards like that reprinted in Android Netrunner just due to the non-interactive nature of, of those decks that just go straight fast advance with very few agendas. On the other hand, going fast advance with cheap agendas like Breaking News and Astro Circuit Pilot Program is always a risky strategy because there's more agendas in your deck. There's more things for the runner to steal. And so I feel pretty comfortable with those sort of agendas being in the game. As far as more 3-2 NBN agendas, after after getting one more, I don't think you're going to see any for a very long time, if ever. 3-2 agendas are something we wanted to put out there, but we want to limit it as well. So we don't want to be possible for the runner to just put like three twos and two ones in their deck. Cool. That's that's good to hear. Um, it, was, it was interesting. Like It seemed like a standard was being set to have a lot of three two agendas, but if that's not going to be the case going into the future, that's that changes things quite a bit. So you actually preempted my next question, which was going to be about fast advance. So that's cool. Um, you answered you answered most of most of what I wanted to uh, to ask already. One kind of more question on top of that: fast advance. Um, do you guys want to kind of support it as a deck archetype, or is it kind of like a tool in a toolbox? Like it's something that corps are capable of, but they're not necessarily focusing on it as a win condition. Uh, in terms of like building around fast advance or not, uh, what do you think? I would say the latter is definitely the preferred way, but ultimately, like the corporation is trying to score agendas, and so they're going to do that any way they can. can so yeah. I think you can certainly have a fast advance archetype where you just go for the cheapest, easiest agendas to score. You focus less on protecting yourself, and you focus more on just trying to rush those agendas through and draw into your fast advance cards like Sans and City Grid and Biotic Labors and Trick of Light. And I think that's uh, that's a valid strategy. It's a risky strategy in certain matchups, and I think that's a good thing. So I, I definitely want that to be an option. I just don't want it to become the only way to play Corporation, because that, right. that means that you know there are a lot of other cool ways to play the Corporation that aren't being explored. Cool. Um, I think that's all the questions I really have. Is there anything else you want to, to add or ask? I will just say that it's been just amazing to see the reception that's gotten from the gaming community, and it's quite awesome 
just to see it played and talked about all over the place. And it has exceeded my and my wildest expectations as far as how successful it's been. And I hope that it's going to be successful for a long time to come. Cool. Um, I, I think that's it for me. I, I've soaked up a lot of your your Saturday afternoon. I don't want to keep you keep you tied here, but I, I really appreciate sitting down and talking with me. This has been a lot of fun and very insightful. So, in, unless you have anything else to say, I think I'm done. Awesome. Thank you for setting this up. It's been a lot of fun. All right. I'll well, take care then, and hopefully, I will see you around at Gen Con or Worlds or something like that. And to all the listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview. All right. Goodbye. E3 Feedback Implants Tyrant Here we have some feedback through the 2.1 channel in the Discord server. Uh, The big boy weighed in on my complaints about Tyrant, where I said that it didn't seem like it had been buffed enough to be good enough. And he said it can't be buffed too much because of Tenon Institute. That interaction can get kind of crazy. So I was right that Tyrant is still a touch weak. I was right that it's due to another card coming later in the pool. And I was right that I didn't know what that card is. But here's the answer. It's Tenon Institute. This is one of the three new identities that comes in the second deluxe box, the one that focuses on Criminal and Jinteki. And its ability is when your turn begins, you may place one advancement token on a card if the runner did not make a successful run during his or her last turn. So this is similar, actually, to the Building a Better World identity that we just got in A Study in Static, except it's even cheaper, rather than... But of course, there's a different caveat, right? So if the Wayland's identity, every turn you can spend your click and no credit to advance a card, with Tenon... You can only you can get a free advancement, so no click and no credit, but not if the runner made a successful run on the previous turn. Point being then that if Tenon is dropping lots of subroutines on Tyrant, apparently that, that interaction can get kind of crazy. So there's the reason for it. And I have another piece of feedback from the big boy, but unfortunately, it goes in the next section. Red herrings. Be careful with your hourglass math. That's what the big boy told me, because last week, here's what I said about hourglass. If the runner is hitting hourglass on click one, it's a pretty serious piece of analog taxing ice, costing five even for Gordian Blade to cut through, or three additional clicks the runner's whole turn. But there's a reason that hourglass now costs only one, since it isn't likely to get that full value on anything but the first encounter run on click two, and it only costs four credits, or two clicks. Run on click three, and it's only three credits, or one click. But here's the kicker, run on click four, and it's nothing. So this isn't actually correct. Because, you know, if you run on click two, and you spend only four credits, and you leave one subroutine unbroken, well, then it's still going to cost you a click, right? Just because you've already used a click doesn't mean that one of the subroutines is already used. So I was wrong about that. So really the fact is that 
though the click cost goes down, for example, if you don't have a decoder, the credit cost is the same all the way through. It's going to be five credits on click one and five credits on click two and five credits on click three. Whereas the click cost, I was right about that part. It's a three click cost if you run on your first click, a two click cost if you run on your second click, and a one click cost if you run on your third click. Either way, you give up the whole rest of your turn, no matter what, this, what click you run on if you don't break the subroutines. And it still does nothing on click four. Because, so that's still a time you really want to run on if you want to spend nothing additional. But there's a little difference in the actual cost. Thank you to the big boy for quickly listening and sussing out that mistake on my behalf. Research Station. Super quick, at-a-glance review of data packs. This is a post on Reddit that was posted by user, I don't know how to pronounce this, Say it Zero, S-A-E-T-Z-E-R-O. And what this person did was go through and go through each data pack and each deluxe expansion and evaluate which of the cards there were considered great for a particular faction, good for a particular faction, or potentially good or useful for any faction. Here's the description he gives for this grading scale. Great usually means a very strong card, a staple card in the faction, something you will see in competitive play often enough to really be aware of the card. If I had to rate the card on a scale of 1 to 5, great will be 4 or 5. Good means something that can be useful in the right deck. This could also mean a card that acts as a substitute to something else that's more staple. If I had to rate the card on a scale from 1 to 5, good will be 1, 2, or 3. The influence system does allow you to make weaker decks with a limited card pool freely. Anything that gives you a useful tool, regardless if it's the strongest choice, will probably be in good. However, this is more for cards that are just decent value, not niche cards that make one deck work but never see play outside it. For example, Forger as a console is not going to be listed. It's good, really good, I think, actually, in Geist, and never used anywhere else. Too niche to be considered. It's too hard to rate packs individually if I try to play into niche cards too, or cards that are super strong if you have other packs to make the entire package shine. Disclaimer, this is very, very subjective. Your mileage may vary. The list is quick and dirty, though. By pack, I'm just going to tell you the cards I think are good enough to be considered. I am not explaining why. You can freely ask me, and I will answer, but explaining every choice makes this a lot longer and harder to absorb. This is kind of going on the logic of, you are new? I am telling you these cards are the good ones to look at. You do not really need to know why just yet. He then has a list of each faction, and it's from 
after the first rotation in the game, so after Genesis Cycle and Spin Cycle were no longer tournament legal, where he lists the top eight data packs and deluxe expansions for each faction. And then uh, there's, which I'm going to ignore. And then there's the big part of the list, again, which is the pack-by-pack rundown. Now, the usual caveats here, obviously this was not talking about cards that Reboot has buffed or nerfed. And it's within the context of a meta that was from after the Reboot card pool uh, has ended. You know, it's well into the, the cycles afterwards. So, you know, it's not going to pick up everything exactly right. But I'm just going to run through briefly what he had to say for the packs that we have seen so far. For what lies ahead, great for Anarch, Imp, and Wizard. Potentially useful for any runner, Plasquete Carapace. Great for HB, and useful for any corp, Ash. Great for Wayland, Project Atlas. In Trace Amount, great for Anarch, Liberated Account. Good for, potentially useful for any runner, Vamp. Great for Jinteki, Replicating Perfection and Fetal AI. In Cyber Exodus, uh, he evaluated no cards as great for the runners. Six of them were good, and any runner potentially for test run. Great for HB, Project Vitruvius. And good for any corp, pop-up window. A study in static is the one that we're focused on here, so I will give you the goods here as well. No greats for, for runner. Good for Anarch, Scrubber. Good for Shaper, Deus Ex. Potentially for any runner, Underworld Contact. Great for Wayland, Oversight AI. Aha, see? That's the one that got nerfed. Good for Wayland or any corp, False Lead. I'll try to remember to go check this out every time I have a new pack to cover. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes, although not necessarily anything that Jeff and Lucas talked about because I'm not going to re-listen to that in advance of posting the episode. Music is from Alexi Action. The website is netrunner2.1.com. You can play online by going to reteki.fun, although to find games, really a lot better to go to the Discord server for Reboot. I have links to that in the show notes as well, and contact information for me all over in the show notes. The AstroScript pilot program this time around is another story from the Worlds of Android book, this one about Cynthia Haas. And even though she's German, I'm not doing a German accent, but I'm pretty sure she would have one. Thanks for listening. See you next week. New Angeles at night pulsed like a monstrous, iridescent organism. The view from 1,500 meters up was always impressive, especially on a rare, clear night like tonight. Cynthia Haas stood at the full-length windows of her villa atop the Haas Arcology and studied the city she helped create. With a few hand movements, she increased the magnification of her view 16, 32, 64 times onto the root in the distance and began slowly panning across the skyline. The northern and western horizon was dominated by the expanse of the Pacific, 
but tonight her interests lay to the south. With another gesture, the entire top section of the arcology slowly rotated 110 degrees to give her a view of Rabat Gorod district with its vast storage facilities for bioroids. Corporations, governments, and private individuals who were unwilling to house bioroids on site often rented storage in Rabat Gorod for when their bioroids were offline. It was a curious practice, Cynthia thought, because bioroids didn't need to sleep. But apparently most people felt more comfortable when their bioroids followed a similar schedule to their own. How many were out there now? This moment of quiet reflection was a rare indulgence for Cynthia. A quirk in her normally busy schedule had left her evening free, and she had decided to resist the temptation to immediately fill the time with work. Her pad chimed. He was on his way up. The question of how many bioroids were out there raced through her mind. Her pad provided an estimate. 98,760,200, based on current production, minus recalls, decoms, and the blue, violet, ultraviolet, and black level prototypes. It had all happened shockingly fast. She remembered clearly the feeling when the first bioroid was awakened, when the ambitious dream finally became a reality. Her scientific curiosity had almost immediately yielded to an overwhelming sense of business opportunity. Now, she sensed another shift was happening, but this one was much slower and subtler. Lately, her mind was less focused on profits and increasingly occupied with the thought that she was permanently altering the future of the human race. Was this what humanity needed? Of course it was. There was no turning back. The only way was forward. Admiring your handiwork, said a familiar voice. Cynthia turned her back on New Angeles and looked at the man who had just entered the room. He was well-dressed, as always, with perfectly styled silver hair. But he was thin and looked tired, like his older body could no longer keep up with his youthful lifestyle. He stretched onto her genuine leather sofa with an easy familiarity. Or, he paused with a dramatic raise of an eyebrow, maybe you're plotting the next phase of your world domination? World domination, she said with a hint of a smile. There's a whole solar system out there. New Angeles, Luna, Mars. It's all just the beginning. Oh, great. Here it comes, he said with a roll of his eyes. Just because you've never had any ambition of your own doesn't mean you can't understand mine. Haas Bioroid is shaping the future of humanity. A responsibility I'm sure you continue to take very seriously, he said. Don't forget that humans have been evolving on their own for a lot longer than you and your things have been around. You know what got us out of the trees and caves? 
she said sharply. The ability to devote our attention to something other than the hard labor of survival. Technology leads to leisure time, which leads to creative thinking and innovation. We've got one bioroid for every 100 people, but it took us decades to get even that far. If humanity is going to advance, we need to stop breaking our backs once and for all. Fascinating, he said with a slow clap of his hands. And by that, I mean totally boring. You know, I don't really want to talk to Director Haas. I'd like to talk to my gal. I haven't been that for 19 years, she said. She turned back toward her windows. Nineteen years ago, the view to the south would have been dark, a vast wilderness of foothills and forest. Tonight, it was an ocean of light from the world's largest city. Nineteen years. Has it really been that long? John, why are you really here? She spun to face him again and stabbed at him from across the room with her finger. I invited you here last week, not tonight. I was planning to leave for Heinlein this morning. I'm only here now because I had to attend to something important. What sort of important? It's none of your business. This whole encounter is just an accident. A lucky accident, he said with a smirk. Or maybe you're not the only one with informants. Someone's going to be sorry, she thought. John stood up and stretched. What's for dinner? You know, you're worse than Thomas. John glanced sideways, as if to verify they really were alone. How is Thomas? He's the same. Not that you would have any idea what that means. Touché. He stroked his chin an old habit left over from his bearded days. Now, that Adonis fellow, he continued, he's something. And Eve, you've got to be drowning in creds from those two. You're a regular madame of old. Hey, can I ask you a question? Have you ever, you know, done it with one of them? No. You can't ask me a question like that, she said icily. I mean, I know I was always a distant second to your work, but I never thought the bioroid replacement thing would go that far. Her eyes narrowed, her cheeks flushed with anger. I think I'll kick you out now. You won't, he said, smiling. Who else can talk to you like this? You want me here. Don't flatter yourself. He stood up and walked boldly toward her, not stopping until they were nearly touching. He was both a little taller and a little older than her, and, like her, he had not tried to entirely conceal his age with biotech. You've looked better, he said, smiling. So have you, she replied. Her flash of fury had already passed. He'd always had that effect on her. Her mind drifted back to their time in Berchtesgaden. So long ago, it seemed like a different lifetime. 
Part of her longed to return to that simpler life. But there was no turning back. The only way was forward. Cynthia, said John, the world can wait. At least for tonight. She hesitated, then sighed, and touched her pad. A single low note chimed throughout the room. Jeeves, she said. A blue holographic image of a bioroid's face floated above a nearby table. Yes, director, it said. Dinner for two.